14, and we've been here for a little while. And uh, just to remind you, this isn't a prayer that we just pray and recite over and over and over ad nauseum. It actually means something, and it's probably one of the most succinct models that the Lord gave us. It is the most succinct model, condensed model that the Lord gave us for prayer. And so when we pray, we look at the Lord's prayer and we say, okay, our prayer should align with this. And so as we read through it and just do a little bit of review, we'll look at the the last section of this today, Um, speaking of God's forgiveness and our need of confession and also forgiveness for one another. In this manner, verse 9 says, Therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Verse 14, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We've been looking at this for some time, as I said. And uh, last week, we looked at the aspect of forgiveness. And just in in way of uh, review, we've looked at uh, basically our our problem, which is sin, and God's provision, which is forgiveness. And uh, we looked at basically two kinds of forgiveness. There's judicial forgiveness that God says at a point in time because Christ died on the cross and you have put your faith in Christ and Christ alone, that he judicially, he lowers the gavel and says, you are forgiven, past, present, future. That's judicial forgiven. Forgiveness, And then we also looked at parental forgiveness, which talks about the relationship aspect of that and how we need to go to the Lord when we sin and we need to affirm that forgiveness that he's already given us. But it's, it's really to maintain that relationship that we have with the Lord, unhindered. And we looked at basically four principles They're listed there in your outline. Sin makes man guilty and brings judgment. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory, the Bible says. Sin is basically the idea of missing the mark or stepping over the line. We've all done that. There's not a person here this morning who can say, oh, I'm perfect. (laughs) And if you say that, you're lying. So there. So we're all sinners. We all are guilty before holy God. And then secondly, we looked at forgiveness is offered by God on the ground of Christ's death. Such an important thing to understand that it's offered on the grounds of Christ's death. It's not offered on what church you go to. It's not offered on how many good works you do. It's not offered on, you know, what family you come from or how long you've been this or how long you've been that or, or how often you go and feed the poor. It's not offered on that. It's offered on the ground of Christ's death. And that's so important for us to understand because we live in a world today that, that people are, are searching for something. They really are. And you see, basically, you know, when something happens, a disaster or something, you see all sorts of people flocking to that disaster and helping in some ways. And I bet you a majority of those people probably are helping in some way simply because they're trying to deal with their own guilt of their sin that's never dealt with. And so they're trying to work it out. They're trying to to go there and help other people that maybe they can feel better about themselves. And there's nothing wrong with helping other people, don't get me wrong, but if you're doing it just for the basis of trying to earn some respect before God or trying to maintain that relationship with God, God says in the Bible that our works are like filthy rags. And I won't go in this morning what that word filthy means, but it means a whole lot more than just an oily, grimy uh, rag in the corner of your garage that's basically good for the trash. It means a lot worse than that. That's what he looks at our good works as when he sees us doing good works outside of Christ. When we're doing them for a motive, when our motive is, well, I'm going to earn favor with God somehow. And so God offers that forgiveness based on the grounds of Christ's death. I mean, think what a silly thing it would be for Christ to go to the cross if we could still work out our salvation somehow. If somehow he went to the cross, he gave up his life, he died for the sins of the world, and yet God says, okay, well, over here, you can do it this way too. That would kind of demean 
the, the meaning of the cross or his death. It wouldn't really mean a whole lot if there's multiple, multiple ways to get to heaven. There's only one way, and that's through the death of Christ. And then thirdly, and I kind of want to touch on this today, the plea of confession. The plea of confession. There's probably nothing more needful in the heart of man than his need for forgiveness. But followed up from that, uh, that need, there's a need for confession. God says that we need to confess our sins. Um, you know, dealing with the aspect of forgiveness, uh, I read an illustration. There was a headstone in, in a uh, cemetery in New York City. And on the headstone, it didn't say anything. It didn't have a name. It didn't have a date. It didn't have anything. The only thing on that headstone, it was for a lady, the only, the only thing that was written across that headstone was forgiven. That's it. And the one important point that that woman wanted everybody to understand was that she was forgiven through Christ. And see, there's a lot of people that are searching for forgiveness, but they're looking in all the wrong places. There's a lot of people who need forgiveness, but they're unwilling to go to God and admit their need for forgiveness. So therefore, they don't get it. I think it's so interesting when we come to the area of confession, how confession works. Henry Breacher wrote this. He says, let me go and saw off a branch from one of the trees that is now budding in my garden. I've done that, by the way, against my wife's wishes. And I can attest that this is what happens. And all summer long, there will be an ugly scar where the gash has been made. But by next autumn, it will be perfectly covered over by the growing, and by the following autumn, it will be hidden out of sight. And in four or five years, there will be but a slight scar where it has been. And in 10 to 20 years, you won't even, even suspect that there had ever been any kind of amputation. See, trees know how to kind of overgrow their own injuries and hide them. That's just what they do. And see, it's interesting, when we come to the idea of forgiveness and we come to the idea, you can't think of forgiveness without thinking of love. And love is much bigger than trees. Love has the ability to kind of cover up those scars. And forgiveness is that kind of, of love. That's what's needed. And so when we today look at the aspect of confession briefly, we touched on it last week a little bit. But the first thing is, when you want to confess something, I don't know about you, but it is hard. Confession doesn't come easy to me. It just doesn't. I remember when I was little and unwise, um, I was in a Kmart store and uh, went there to buy some model paint, a little tester's thing, a little, you know, 69-cent jar of paint. And I'm wandering around, and I thought, I had the money and everything. I thought, I'll steal this little jar of paint. No one will ever know. I mean, I must have walked around that store about three hours, convincing myself that it was okay. You know, I got the money. You know, if they stopped me, I could just say, oh, I forgot, you know. And it was just this turmoil I was in. And I wasn't a Christian at the time. I was an altar boy, but I wasn't a Christian. So... I'm in there dealing with this for, and I, you know, the security people must have just been laughing their heads off, thinking this, this poor boy, you know, <laughs> I was just screaming, catch me, you know, and so I get up there and I bought a piece of gum or something, and I had the testers paint in my pocket and walk through, nothing happened, I thought, oh, cool, so I'm kind of walking out the door, nothing, I get, make like maybe 10 steps into the parking lot, and I feel this hand on my shoulder, son, you need to come with me, and I thought, oh. What? what, what? You're being arrested for shoplifting. And I, my heart just sank. And I, oh, whoa. And I pulled him. You must mean the paint. So I tried to turn the charm off. Oh, you know, I got the money to pay for it. I just forgot. I was in the store so long. And I just started throwing up all over this guy. Here, <laughs> coming with me. And I remember going back to this little room, you know, seeing all these security cameras. And I'm watching all these cameras thinking they were watching me the whole time. I mean... And, you know, and they kept on saying, why did you steal? I said, I didn't, you know, I just forgot. 
And then my brother had to come and pick me up. And, you know, and then he got our family lawyer involved in this because I somehow convinced my brother that I was innocent of this whole thing. And, and I remember a week, going through a week of this, talking to the lawyer and, you know, in his office and everything, saying, yeah, I don't know, what, I've got to fight in court. That's fine. You know, I'm innocent. And it was so ridiculous. And finally, after like two weeks, I mean, they knew. My brother knew. The lawyer knew. I mean, the people at Kmart knew. God knew. I knew that I did it. But I'd almost convinced myself that I didn't need to confess this thing. And finally, my brother just had enough. And he said, okay, look, this is what's going to happen if we just, you know, deal with this. And it's not that big of a deal. It is, but it's not. But you need to confess. You need to go to the store and you need to admit that you stole this stuff. Pay him for it. And, you know... Hopefully nothing will go on your record, which it never did. I mean, I'm sure they were laughing at me the whole time, thinking this, this poor kid. But you know what? It taught me a lesson. It taught me a couple lessons. Don't steal stuff from Kmart. But, uh, you know. But another thing it taught me was, you know what? When we come to confession, confessing things, it's difficult. It's, it's very difficult to confess something. In, in Proverbs chapter 28, go ahead and turn over there just quickly. Proverbs 28, verse 13, says this, He who covers his sins will not prosper. In other words, you're trying to hide them. It will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will what? Have mercy. God will give us, withhold something from us that we deserve. We deserve judgment for our sins, but because we go to God and we confess them, He withholds that judgment because of Christ. And it's desirable that we do it. It's difficult to to just, you know, uh, confess our sins. Even to God, it's difficult. And sometimes we simply refuse to do so. We just hold everything inside. And God is saying, hey, I'm a loving God. I've sent my son. Everything's taken care of. Just come and and confess your sins to me. And they're, they're dealt with. And you need to understand that. Now, over in, in 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verse 13. 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verse 13. David said to, to Nathan, basically, I've sinned against you, Lord. And, and David said to, to, to Nathaniel again in, in 2 Samuel 24, uh, 10, I've sinned against the Lord greatly, and I, all everything I've done, I've acted foolishly. See, it's, it's coming to God, and it's saying, hey, you know what? I blew it. I'm wrong. You're right. In First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 7, David said to God, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. See, confession of sin is something that in the Bible, okay, when it comes for the covering of our sin, it's always done... Not to a man, but it's done to God. In Isaiah, Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a people, amidst a people of unclean lips. So we all have this sin problem. We all are plagued with sin in our heart. That's why we, our deepest need is that of forgiveness. But the, the way to get that forgiveness, the road to forgiveness, is through confession. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 20 Daniel said, I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin. See, it's a very biblical concept to confess our sin. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, Peter said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He was confessing that. Paul said, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am what? Chief. Talk about sinners, I'm number one, God. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. See, confessing sin isn't easy. It's never easy. But it's something that is, it's it's not only desirable, it's needed. It's totally needed to obtain forgiveness. So we don't conceal our sin. See, that's what our human nature says. When we get in trouble, what do we do? We want to go hide. Remember Adam and Eve. 
I mean, they've been talking, walking with God in the garden, all this stuff, and what do they do? They blow it, they sin, they do something God hasn't told them to do. God shows up again. What do they do? They hide. Hello, get a clue. He's God, you're not. You think you're really hiding from him? And God approaches the whole thing and kind of, where are you? It's not that God didn't know where he was. He really wanted Adam to ask that question. Where are you? He wanted Eve to ask that question. Sometimes we've got to stop life and we've got to ask ourselves that question. Where are we in relationship to a holy God? Where are we? Have our sins been covered? Have we come to Christ? Have we been forgiven? Are we still grappling with our sins? Are we still dealing with the guilt? Are we still trying to work God, work something out here? John Stott said this in one of his books. He says, one of the surest antidotes to the process of moral hardening is the disciplined practice practice of uncovering our sins of thought and outlook as well as word and deed and the repentant forsaking of the same. See, if, if we confess our sins, as the Bible tells us to do on a continuous basis, we guard ourselves against a hardening before the Lord. See, I've seen Christians who have said, yeah, forgiveness. Yeah, I like that sermon on judicial forgiveness. Our sins are forgiven, past, present, future. Don't feel guilty about them anymore. You know, you're forgiven in Christ. You need to claim victory in Christ. I like that. And then they walk out these doors and they go and they do something that's totally dishonoring to Christ, totally the opposite of what God's Word tells us to do. And they use that sermon to justify They're unholy actions. Well, the pastor said I was forgiven. Can't lose my salvation, so what the heck? Just going to go out and kind of do whatever. That's dangerous. You're you're, you're getting hardened, hardened to the things of God. I've heard Christians tell me they've been so hardened toward one another in their marriage that they believe it's God's will that they get a divorce. And they really believed it. They're so far removed from the things of God. They say, oh, no, I, you know, I met this secretary, and she treats me a lot better than my wife, so you know, I believe it's God's will that I just go marry the secretary. I divorce my wife and leave my family. And you really think this is God's will? Oh, yeah. He's confirmed it. Just got this feeling. I don't know what the feeling is, brother. It's bad pizza or hot pepper or something, but it's not God telling you to do something like that. So when we come to the area of confession, we need to remember that it's something that is necessary to obtain forgiveness. little book on the prayers of the Puritan. I just want to read a little section out of it for you, dealing with confession. And it's kind of a lengthy session, so section, so kind of be gracious here this morning. It says, God of grace, thou hast imputed my sin to my substitute, and hast imputed his righteousness to my soul, has clothed me with the bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness, But in my Christian walk, I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My, my, My receiving the Spirit is even with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I'm always standing clothed in filthy rags and by grace am always receiving change of raiment. For you always justify the ungodly. I am always going into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal and always saying, Father, forgive me. Thou art always bringing forth the best robe again. Every morning, let me wear it. Every evening, return to it. Go out to do the day's work in it. Be married in it. 
stand before the great white throne in it, enter heaven in it, shining as the sun. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ and the exceeding beauty of holiness and the exceeding wonder of grace. I am guilty, but pardoned. I am lost, but saved. I am wandering, but found. I am sinning, but cleansed. Give me perpetual broken heartedness. Keep me always clinging to the cross. Flood me every moment with descending grace and open to me the springs of divine knowledge sparkling like crystal, flowing clear and unsullied through my wilderness of life. See, when we come to the Lord and we confess our sins, it really helps us to purge our souls. That's the plea of confession. That's what he wants us to do. What is confession? Confession is basically saying the same thing about something that God says. It's not trying to justify it. You think a bad thought, God's word says you shouldn't think that. You need to go to God and say, God, you know what? I know this is wrong. That's what confession is. Confession isn't going to God and begging him for forgiveness. Confession is going to God and agreeing with him that what you did is wrong and then thanking him for the forgiveness that you already have in Christ. And when we do that, God restores our soul. He nurtures our soul. He brings back the joy of our salvation that maybe we lost. Now in Matthew, he not only talks about this plea of confession that's much needed, but he also talks here about the aspect of how we get this confession. Why is it so important that we, as he says here, Forgive one another. In verse 14, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That sounds kind of conditional to me. In verse 15, but if you do not forgive men their trespasses or their sins, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Wait a minute. I thought salvation was free. I thought we just came to Christ and trusted in the cross. What are you saying? It's not what I'm saying. It's what the Word of God is saying. See, there's a prerequisite to us understanding the forgiveness that God gives us. That prerequisite is the ability to forgive others. There's several reasons why we're told to forgive others. They're listed there for you. We're to forgive others because it's, it's the character of the saints. Christians are characterized by those who forgive. I remember reading a... Uh, there's a new book out on prayer, and I was reading the, the beginning of it. And uh, the guy who wrote it was talking about how in 9-11 he was there after the, the planes hit and the cleanup was going on and everything. And he remembers being in this circle of chaplains, and they were praying. And everybody's, you know, amening the prayer. And this bold chaplain said, God, we're taught in Scripture to forgive our enemies. We know who did this. Bin Laden. God, we pray that we would find it in our heart to forgive this man of this evil that was done to our country. And he said, all of a sudden in the circle, the amen stopped. And everybody just kind of took a deep breath like, and they're processing what this chaplain said. What he said was right on. We're called to forgive. Because that's the character of Christ. Matthew chapter 5, if you just back up a little bit, verse 43, it says, As you have heard that it was said, you shall love what? Your neighbor and hate your enemy. But verse 44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. See, the rabbis were okay with hating their enemies. But Jesus said, no, that's not what the law teaches. You're to love your enemies. You're to forgive your enemies. We're to pray for them. When's the last time you got cut off in the freeway? In the quietness of that moment, sitting there in a traffic jam, somebody butts in front of you, you just prayed for them. I'm usually 
doing something else at that point. I mean, nothing terribly bad, but I'm thinking lots of bad things in my mind. (laughs) See, as a Christian, when you fail to forgive someone else, you set yourself up as a higher court than even God. Because God is a God who infinitely forgives. And really, that's idolatry. You're really worshiping yourself. You're saying, hey, I know better than God. God calls me to forgive, but you don't understand what was done to me in my childhood. You don't know what was done from my parents. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know. Well, you know what? God knows. And God tells you very clearly, you know what? Because you've been forgiven, you need to forgive. I'm not saying it's easy. But that's what he calls us to do. We're called to forgive one another also because it characterizes the saints, but it also follows the example of Christ. 1 John 2.6, if we say that we abide in Him, we ought to walk as He walked. That's what Scripture says. Well, how did He walk? He walked in forgiveness. That's why in Ephesians 4, verse 32, it says that we're to forgive one another even as God, for Christ's sake, has what? Forgiven us. Who are we to stand before someone else and say, I'm not going to forgive you, when we know that God has forgiven us? Christ has established the model. On the cross, to the the very ones who had driven the nails through his hands, to the ones who had spit upon him and mocked him and put a crown of thorns down upon his forehead. He asked the Father to what? Forgive them. That's the model of our forgiveness. We are to forgive one another because it's characteristic of the saints. It's also an example of Christ. But it also expresses the highest virtue of man. It expresses the highest virtue of man. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11 says, The discretion of a man differeth his anger. And it says this, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. When we're wronged, we're called by Christ, by God, to forgive. That's the highest virtue that we can do. We're also to do that because it frees us from a conscience of guilt. You think of, of David who lived in a, this, this midst of this unforgiving situation, known all kinds of, of problems. And he was just out of it. It says his bones were waxing old because he was holding everything inside. See, there's a connection between an unforgiving heart and the advantage that Satan has to use that situation. We need to make sure that we're forgiving people, that we're willing to forgive others as they have forgiven us. We should also do it because it delivers us from chastening. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Every son that the Lord loves, he scourges and he chastens. And in 1 Corinthians, there was so much animosity toward one another, so much bitterness in that church. There was factions and they were just mocking the things of God. And the Bible says that that's because many of... That's the reason... uh, They were that way. And because of that, they were weak and they were sick and some of them even died. See, the Lord's chastening will come if we don't do what He says. Some of you have maybe been holding back on forgiving someone. Don't do it. You're just putting yourself under the the discipline of the Lord. And sixthly, we're to forgive one another because if we don't, we won't be forgiven either. That's right there in our passage, verses 14 and 15. We don't, some people don't understand those verses. You can look back on the previous messages and kind of get the, the foundation of what we're trying to say here this morning. But in this prayer, we're focusing on this petition regarding man's spiritual need. The first three are regarding God. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And then he turns to the needs of man. The primary need first is physical. He says, sustain, give us our daily bread, verse 11. Then verse 12, forgive us our debts, spiritual need. 
And he uses the word forgiveness over and over and over in that passage. He wants us to know that we're to forgive one another. First John chapter 2 says, If we love God and we're in the Lord and we continue to love our brethren, we'll, we'll continue to be obedient to the laws of God. See, one thing God expects from us is He expects us to live in obedience to His Word. And the Bible says very clearly that when it comes to sin and it comes to God's forgiveness and it comes to confession, if we confess our sins, the Bible says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we do that, we also have to go to the next step and say, okay, I know God has forgiven me. Who do I need to forgive? Who do I need to forgive? See, the prerequisite for forgiveness is forgiving others. He says, forgive us our debts as we have been forgiven. You could translate that, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven. The idea is that, see, before we ever seek forgiveness for our own sin, for our own sin against God, which we're indebted to, that we owe a terrible price, before we ever seek forgiveness, before we ever do that, we already have forgiven those who have sinned against us. That's the idea here. First we forgive, then we are forgiven. I think it's it's important for us to see that very clearly. That's the the kind of the, the prerequisite here. You might say, well, you know what, I I come to church all the time, read my Bible all the time. But you know what? There's something missing in my life. There's some kind of... There's, I'm not, I don't have the joy that I see other Christians have. Maybe it's because you're, you're unwilling to forgive somebody. Maybe there's something that happened in your life that you, you haven't dealt with. Maybe you don't see God using you in the way that maybe you feel that He should. Maybe you need to stop and take some inventory and say, God, is there anybody that has done something wrong to me that I have not gone to and I have not forgiven them because that's the first step that's what God expects from us see the the prayer here is not forgive us because we forgive others but forgive us even as we have already forgiven others see that's the idea He's going to deal with us as we, what? Have dealt with Him. And we deal with others. In Luke 6, the Bible says that if we sow sparingly, what will we reap? Sparingly. If we sow bountifully, we'll reap bountifully, right? God deals with us the way we deal with Him. Whatever we invest in His kingdom we receive a return on. Okay, now if we're harboring sins and grudges, we cut us cut ourselves off really from the blessedness of God in our lives. See, in, in 200 B.C., the Jews said, forgiveness of your neighbor's wrongdoing means that when you pray, your sins will be forgiven too. See, they knew that. They could understand that spiritual principle. As a matter of fact, even in the Talmud, the, the, the rabbinical commentary in the Old Testament, it says, he who is indulgent toward others' faults will be mercifully dealt with by, this, by the supreme judge himself. See, that's a, a principle in God's word. And you say, well, what about a grudge? How do you deal with grudges? Have you ever had a grudge against somebody? Sure, we all have. We probably had grudges against us too, <laughs> so we know both ends of it. Well, how do you how do you deal with that? See, judicially, we know that we're forgiven, we're justified, and the righteousness of Christ has been put on our account. But somehow, 
the joy of knowing all that has just been sucked out of us. And somehow, you know, we're walking through this world and our feet are getting muddy and we're not going to God on a daily basis and saying, hey, you know what, I know I don't need a whole bath because I'm cleansed in the the righteousness of Christ, but I do need my feet washed daily. How do we deal with that aspect of holding grudges? Um, I think it's kind of practical. The first thing is go to God. Go to God and say, God, you know what? I have a grudge against this person, and I really dislike this person. And it, it, admit to it. Confess it. Take it to God as sin. That's where it starts. They may have done something wrong to you. That doesn't negate. That doesn't give you the right to have a grudge against them. See, that's what we think in our human mind. Well, it's okay. You don't know how they treated me, this neighbor you know, killed my cat or whatever. I mean, I don't know what the person's done. But see, we're not told to to just, you know, hold these grudges. We need to first take it to God as sin. Sometimes that's tough, but it's usually not as tough as the next one. You actually go to the person. Take it to the person. When you go to somebody you have a grudge against and you say, you know what, <laughs> I have to confess something to you. You said this to me three weeks ago, and it's, it really hurt my feelings. It really irritated me. And since then, trust me, I have not thought good thoughts about you. And it's hard for me even to come to you today and tell you this. But you know what, I want to admit to you that I have this... I harbor this grudge against you. And I just want to confess it. I've already confessed it to God, but I want to confess it to you. And I want to ask for your forgiveness. See, so many times we want to wait till we feel like doing that. Or the situation kind of just cools down to where, well, it's okay to do that. You know, sometimes that's years afterwards. Somebody brings up, yeah, you know, Pastor, you remember when you said that that one day? Boy, I was really ticked off at you. As a matter of fact, I was ticked off at you for probably two years. And I'm going, what? Well, I don't even remember what you're talking about. And you stop and you think, you think that's a good way? You're you're pining over this thing for two years. The other person has no clue that you're even dealing with this. See, God says, no, first of all, take it to me as sin. Secondly, go to the person and just confess it and ask for forgiveness. And you watch what happens. There's a freedom. There's a joy that returns to your Christian life that wasn't there the whole time you were harboring this thing. And it could be something real, real, real tiny. You know, there, there's, there's some things that, you know, I mean, marriages when we, you know, we grow closer to one another and, you know, all this stuff. And, and, and sometimes the things that come up are like a little grain of sand in your shoe and you don't have socks on it just it's like this little tiny pebble in your shoe and it's you know it's not a big deal but it's just irritating you because they haven't dealt with it that person may say I didn't even know I offended you of course I forgive you I mean forgive me and then the relationship is restored it's not you know this fake thing that, that goes on. It's a real, genuine thing. So take it to God. Go to the person. And this is what I thought was a very practical insight. It says, give the person something you value very highly. <laughs> See, Jesus says, basically, where your treasure is, what? That's where your heart is. Okay? See, when you have a grudge against somebody, and there's bitterness that kind of wells up in your heart, Maybe it's somebody in your family or out of your family, whatever, in the church, whatever it may be. You hold them, you hold that against them. It has to be dealt with, first of all, by God. And then you go to the person you deal with. And then you give them something of value. Because what you're doing is you're putting value in that relationship. And they're going to see that. And I, I don't know what it would be. I mean, maybe it was something you were fighting over or whatever. And see, that's true confession. 
That's when God really begins to work in our hearts and in their heart. And we see a a genuine love in the body of Christ. But see, so many times in churches, everybody comes and goes, and, you know, there's grudges all over the place. God sees them. It grieves his heart. But nobody talks about them. See, that's not the way it ought to be. I think to really have the joy of the Christian life, we need to make sure that, that we have had that, that forgiving spirit toward one another. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the what? Merciful. Why? Because they will receive what? Mercy. Okay? It's a spiritual principle. And you may say, well, you don't understand. I have a right to be angry. Well, Okay. You want to hold the grudge? I'm not saying you don't, you know, I'm not saying you just lay down and let somebody walk all over you. Jesus didn't do that. But there comes a point in time where you have to be willing to let go and trust God to kind of, to, to, to really work. I mean, you know, sometimes people are just, Stupid, I guess. You know, they, they say stupid things, they do stupid things. We're all included in this. So I'm not talking about any individual, obviously. I'm talking about all of us. Okay? And, and sometimes when we do those things, it's sometimes it's done on purpose. Sometimes it's done just by happenstance. Just we don't even know what we're doing sometimes. But whatever the case, we need to make sure that we understand that that God sees it. And if, if we sense in our spirit there's something wrong, we need to go and we need to get it dealt with. Um, God doesn't want us to harbor things against one another. And he says, you know what, this is a, a very clear prerequisite of you forgiving, me forgiving you, is, is you make sure that you have forgiven those around you. you say, well, that doesn't, doesn't that make a, a work? No. And I'll tell you why. Because someone who has come to Christ, who recognizes their sin, who is totally distraught over their sin, and they come to Christ and they cry out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't think that's the same kind of person that's saying, oh yeah, and I'm not going to forgive you. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18. Quickly, and we'll close with this. Look down at verse twenty one. Peter came to Jesus and he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? (laughs) How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now the whole text prior to this down to verse like 15, it deals with the same issue. The offending brother. Someone's offending somebody. Where somebody has sinned, and you go and you seek reconciliation, and you take somebody with you, and it, it goes through that, the church aspect of it. See, the rabbis taught three times. They taught three times you are to forgive. Fourth time, you don't have to. Just walk away. Wash your hands of it. Now remember, the rabbis, back in Jesus' time, they would take the law of God, the true law of God, as we found out, and they would kind of demean it, they would bring it down to something that they could do. So they began to invent all these rules and these regulations about, okay, you can carry a stick on the Sabbath, but you can't carry it more than so many feet, or you can't carry it if this is the case. You can help somebody out of a ditch if they're going to die, but if they're just stuck in a ditch, then you can't do it. If it's, they, they, they invented all these rules and regulations that are not found in the Word of God. 
but they wanted to take the word of God, God's high standard, and bring it down to their standard and say, well, this is something we can do so we can feel good about ourselves. And this was one of the things that they did. They said, okay, how do we deal with forgiving? Well, you know what? Let's just decide on a number three. Three sounds good to me. Okay, next. Three times you're to forgive. Now, Peter thought when he asked God, you know, how many times are we to forgive when someone wrongs us, Lord? Let's see. I know that we, our culture says three times. Our religion says three times. I'll just double that and add one. Seven times, Lord? And Peter thinks that he is just being super spiritual. We're going to double what the rabbis said. And look at what Jesus says to him in response to his spiritual answer. I say, not unto the seven times, but what? Seventy times seven. Now, in the original language, that's just a way of saying, you know what? Unending. It's indefinite. There's no number that you put on it. Why? How could Jesus say that? For we are to forgive as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And how has he forgiven us? Has he forgiven us 499 times? Did Christ die on the cross for 999 of our sins? But if we sin on the thousandth time that it's over, we're doomed to hell? No. You better hope not. He forgives us indefinitely. And that's what the Lord is saying here. And he kind of illustrates for us in verse 23. He says, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king who had had to take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him who owed him 10,000 talents. I mean, this guy obviously was a real bad person. He was kind of the bottom of the barrel. 10,000 talents is so much money that it's very hard for us to conceive. And he owed 10,000 talents. How could a servant ever owe that much money? He must have been stealing from his boss. Probably stole the crown jewels, probably hawked them and whatever. Whatever it was, he, he was in dire straits here. Somehow he was getting money from the king's treasury. The guy has been robbing the king kind of over a period of time systematically. Verse 25, he had nothing to which to pay. He's blown it all. Nothing left. He's not only crooked, he's stupid, he's foolish. So in verse 25... Says they sell off, sell them off as slaves and make a little money, and basically that's all you're going to get. Verse 20, 26 there says the servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, "Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay you it all." That's pretty stupid. How's he going to repay this? He has, he has no money. And the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion. Amazing. Tremendous amount. He loosed him and he forgave him the debt. That just blows our mind. This king represents God. These servants represent, this servant basically represents all of us. Do we owe a debt that we can't pay? Yes, we do. But he paid it for us. He was compassionate. How could anybody forgive so... I mean, when when we talk about money, that's one thing. But when you talk about our sin and how it's grieved God, how could he just, boom, forgiven based on Christ? Look at what this servant does. 
just to confirm his own wickedness. Verse 28, he went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Three months' work, that's nothing. It's peanuts compared to his 10,000 talents he was fits nothing. It's not even a comparison. The servant went out, the one who had just been forgiven for, say, 10 million bucks, and he went out and he found a guy who owed him as little as three, three months' work. He grabbed him by the neck, it says, takes him by the throat, and he says, pay me what you owe me. And the fellow servant fell down on his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you at all. And you know what? He could have, but he didn't. It says that he cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. See, now, that's kind of a double-edged sword. How are you going to pay back your debt when you're in prison? You can't work. So he's basically doomed to a life of imprisonment. But that shows you how evil this servant's heart was. When his fellow servants saw what he had done, the Bible says he came back and he told the master, told the king, told the Lord what what went on. And And the Lord, after he had called him back, he said, you know what? You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you besought me. Should not also you have had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had had compassion on you? And his Lord was angry, and he delivered him to the inquisitors until he could pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father, listen to this, do also unto you. If you from your heart forgive not every one his brother his trespasses, See, this is the picture that God wants us to see about forgiveness. God gives us unending forgiveness. Who are we to stop and say, well, I'm going to forgive everybody but that person because I don't like them and you don't understand what they did. Who are we to hold grudges? It really hinders the work of God in your life. It hinders the work of God in the church. It hinders the joy that God has given to you. And God simply wants you to to give it to Him. He wants you to go to Him and say, Lord, you know what these people have done to me. Help me to find it in the kindness of my heart because you have forgiven me to go to them and to forgive them and put this behind me.